Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A. It's Thursday afternoon, so there should have been plenty of time for everybody to get their questions in. So let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on YouTube, Scotter140 wants to clear up some confusion on PS2 network adapters. They bought a SATA version of the adapter from a seller on Amazon, and it's missing a network port. So what you're going to run into in these situations are people with the original PS2 network adapter, which has both an IDE hard drive connector inside and a network port on the outside, or you're going to run into aftermarket adapters. And quite a few people are manufacturing ones without the network port for use just with hard drives to run backups and open PS2 loader. And that's probably one of the ones that you picked up. And those aren't necessarily bad. And in fact, the, all of the ones that offer SATA over IDE means that there's one less converter you're going to have to buy in order to use this. Because if you wanted to use the original one, you'd either have to have a SATA to IDE converter or a micro SD to SATA to IDE converter or something. So having that built in is a good thing if that's what you're looking to do. However, if you wanted to try using something like RetroNAS and loading your games over the network, the best bet is just to buy an original official Sony PS2 network adapter. And those should not be expensive. Uh, I mean, unless the price went up in the past couple of weeks, but they're still fairly cheap, especially because since they're IDE only, they're not really a good choice for most people who wanted to add a hard drive. So I would pick up one of those. Um, there are some compatibility differences between loading games over the network versus a hard drive. I've personally had great luck with it, but I know a lot of people who have games that constantly stream audio and video, anything with, uh, you know, any kind of full motion video streaming or anything like that might find a bottleneck on the network. But it's my opinion that these are the type of things that it's really worth trying out if you have the ability to. So yeah, I'll leave a link to just like a generic eBay thing, but, um, you know, just any official Sony PS2 network adapter would probably be your best bet. Over on Patreon, Raymond wanted to follow up with a discussion last week about the VMs he created for RetroNAS, and Raymond uh, put together a site where you could just have everything linked right there, which of course I'll link in the description, and these are Hyper-V or VMware images of Debian with RetroNAS pre-installed. So if you want to download and use these, you have to know how to use Hyper-V and VMware, but you should be able to load it right on and then map a share to your that's already on your drive to this, and then configure the final few steps of RetroNAS. So basically start from the documentation of when it's already been installed. And I think this is a big help for people that just want to skip the steps and, and just get testing on a VM. I think depending on your setup, VMs may or may not be the best choice. For something like Unraid, I would say absolutely, it's a perfect choice. But things on like a Windows desktop PC, 
unless you're leaving that PC running 24-7, which many of us do, of course. Uh, but unless you are, I'm not sure that's the best choice. But either way, these VMs are a great way to get started and just start messing around and playing with it and seeing what you think and kind of going from there. So um, definitely check these out if you're interested. Also, Raymond wanted to know if anybody knew of a good alternative for sharing these larger files. They're using Mega right now, which is fine. But I, I've had good luck with Google Drive, except I know when a lot of people start downloading off of one link, Google shuts that down or something for whatever reason. So if anybody knows of any good alternatives, uh, maybe comment below and you know let us know if any suggestions or any experience you might have had. But, um, you know, uh, overall, I just think this is an awesome way to get started. Or if you have a dedicated 24-7 PC, this might just be your solution for how to run RetroNAS. Couple of questions from Jason Guffey. First, they wanted to follow up on their discussion of HDMI to VGA solutions that would support all different resolutions. Um, I guess last week we talked about a converter that Jason had tested that didn't have support for one specific resolution. So I suggested just trying a couple others because I know Jason had a few laying around. So they said they're gonna go through their other options and see what happens. But they'd also like to know if HDMI to DisplayPort to VGA could be a potential solution. And I would say no, because it's going to be the same issue because you're just going digital to digital and then digital to analog, but you're keeping the same resolution and refresh rate. Now you could get something that's more like a scaler that could possibly do that for you, but that's not just port conversion. That's other stuff. Coincidentally enough, just this morning, I posted the HDMI to display port shootout. Uh, so I th reviewed three different types that you'd certainly be welcome to try if you wanted to go through that experiment. But I don't think that's really something that, you know, once again, not trying to tell you what to do, but I, I wouldn't waste your money on those unless you had another use for it. So like I said, in the very opening of that, uh, of that review, if you have a monitor like I used to have that was 4K30 via HDMI, but 4K60 via DisplayPort, those would be awesome solutions. Uh, and I think they would handle a lot of different things. For most people, the cheaper solution, the Phonex and the HDMI splitter would be the right move. Um, but there are absolutely, I mean, I, I still got it right here. There are absolutely people that would benefit from the far more expensive SIG adapter. Um, I, I love this thing. I just, you know, if, if I end up keeping the capture card that I have, I'll keep that. But it's it just got every feature I would want and something like that. But I digress. Sorry, I spent so much time on that review. It's still bouncing around in my brain, even though it's out. Uh, but I don't think that's something you should buy for this particular scenario that you were talking about, unless you were going to buy it anyway to try something else. And then why not at that point? Uh, also, um, Jason wanted to know about Xbox 360 OEM component cables. They've seen a lot of people use them for do-it-yourself projects, like snipping off the 360 connector and adding on an original Xbox or PS2 connector. Do I know much about the quality of these cables in comparison to something like the HD Retrovisions? They have a very good reputation. It's my personal opinion, only because I know Stee and I know how his brain works, that if they ever released Xbox 360 and original Xbox component cables, I would use those just because I know how Stee is. He won't release something unless he is confident saying these are very good, which for Stee, calmly saying these are very good is the same as me jumping up and down, swinging my arms in the air, swearing, yelling profanities, talking about how awesome they are. So, um... You know, I think it's totally safe to to buy 
OEM cables, knowing that they're probably going to be shielded, built right. And if there's any issues, it's a one-off, you know, something broke on the inside, you know, a manufacturing flaw, whatever. Um, I don't like seeing them hacked up for other solutions. That's just my opinion. I don't, you know, do whatever you would feel like with your own, but especially with PlayStation 2, because you could just order a set of inexpensive HD retrovision, inexpensive compared to other well-shielded stuff out there. Um, and even the original Xbox, you could do the same thing, pick up the HD retrovisions and an adapter. So if you're on a budget and you have extra ones laying around, I totally understand that. But if you're going out purposely looking for these things, I do like to see other solutions. But just to answer your question, do I know much about the quality of these cables? Not too much other than it's kind of the general consensus that they're safe to trust for being well shielded and not going to add any interference. Um, lastly, they're wondering if I knew anything about frame doubling or specifically taking a 30 hertz source and doubling it to 60 or a 60 outputted as 120. So you would have to have a frame buffer in order to do that. As far as I know, so I could be wrong. I'm not an expert in the, in, you know, building scaling algorithms and stuff like that, but I'm friends with the people that are. And I was kind of curious about that myself. And I believe that to do something like that, you'd need a frame buffer and uh, it would be a complicated thing that would add more lag than it was worth. And there really aren't too many scenarios out there which in which you would want this. But with emulation, it would work. So it should be possible to take a PC, I don't know about a Raspberry Pi, but run 240p at 120Hz to get something like a 240p look on a VGA monitor. Now, I've never done this in person. Every time I talk about this, there's always 10 trolls in the comments explaining to me why it's not a good idea. But the people who have done this that have told me about it are people I absolutely trust. So I don't really understand what the problem is. It sounds to me like it really depends on your VGA monitor. Kind of like when I say, take your 240p signals, stick it in the RetroTINK 2X or the OSSC in 2X mode, plug it into a VGA monitor and try that with scan lines. If you have an older VGA monitor where, you know, the color's tinted on it, the brightness doesn't work, so you can't, you can't really see it that well. Yeah, it's a terrible solution. But if you have a semi-decent VGA monitor, it's going to look really close to a PVM. So my guess is that running 240p at 120 hertz doubled from 60 hertz via emulation is something that would look awesome on some CRTs, but not others. Now, that's 100% of a guess. I don't have any CRTs that could accept 120 hertz. I really hope, I really hope to get one 20 inch VGA monitor that can do that though, because I just, uh, I want one here for testing and the ones I tested before only went up to like 85. So hopefully I could stumble across one of those at some point, but that's definitely Definitely one that I would be interested in doing an experiment on, and I would absolutely do a 240p 120 test. But I also know that I'm only going to be doing it on one monitor. So unlike RGB on VGA, that I've, I can't even remember how many times I've done that, I certainly wouldn't come to a final conclusion about one experiment on one monitor. I would try to be open-minded about it and just show how I did it and how I thought it looked. Vert Penguin? Vert Pingawin? I'm so sorry. I'm terrible with everybody's names. I don't mean to be. I just am. Please correct me somehow if you don't mind. But Vert uh, would like to know, with Unraid and RetroNAS and all this stuff, they would like to organize their ROMs properly. This included naming, format, and maybe some kind of collection compilation. For their music library, they know exactly what to do, but for ROMs, they're a bit lost. They started organizing ROMs in a folder tree like RetroNAS, but they're missing some systems. They have a Mr., some flashcards, and ODE for different retro consoles. 
Their question is, where do they begin and what's the advice? So you are in luck big time because first of all, Smoke Monsters packs are already do that. So you're able to download these scripts, you get your ROMs wherever you might find them, and then you run the script on those ROMs and they rename everything. They put them all in the correct directories. It's a pretty cool thing. And now I believe one of the features that's going into Retro NAS, I don't know if it's out, I don't know if it's on the list, but I know Dan has definitely talked about it, but you should be able to just dump your ROMs into a directory, run it right through Retro NAS, and it will do it for you. So I think that is a really cool way to keep everything organized, uh, and especially for things that need to be renamed, that need to be in subfolders. I just think that's such a good idea. Um, there's also talk of CHD format versus ISO, BinQ, and all of that, but the goal is to be compatible with everything, so we're still trying to figure out exactly where we're at with that one. So for some of the optical drive-based consoles, you might still need to do that yourself just to begin with, but if you're going to use RetroNAS, the folder structure there is awesome because due to sim links, wherever you put them, if it's in, let's just say, Sega Genesis, Everywhere that you use this will have its own directory that makes it look like there's multiple copies of each, but they're really only in one place, and the sim links tell the devices like Mr. or whatever that here it's in the folder structure that you're already looking for. So uh, the advice would be to decide... First and foremost, are you going to do a retro NAS setup now, or is that going to be something you do in the future? If it's something that you're going to do in the future, download the Smoke, Mo Smoke Monster pack scripts, um, run those, and that should allow you to organize your collections. There should be tutorials up there or something that shows how to use those. You just have to find the ROMs anywhere you could find them, but the script will take care of it. If you do plan on working with RetroNAS right away, or if you've already built one, check Dan's GitHub and uh, see if that feature is something that's available yet. Maybe by the time you hear this, it'll already be out. Maybe it is already out. I honestly can't remember, but that would just require you to update RetroNAS, which is like one line of code, or they might even have an update built in soon enough. And then the feature would appear, and then you just run that feature. So uh, yeah, great time to ask that question because you have a couple of pretty cool answers. So uh, thanks very much for the kind words. And uh, hopefully I'm able to point you in the right direction for this one. Alfred T. Capulet is having an issue that is pretty common in retro gaming in that they started out with a RetroTINK 2X Mini, but it's not compatible with certain models Elgato capture cards. And this is just kind of a known thing where I generally recommend not using Elgato for this exact reason. Now, yes, there's definitely models that work better than others. Um, some people seem to always have had good luck, but I have not. And this is one of the many issues that I run into, and it seems to be an issue on Elgato's end. So um, that's really not a solvable issue as far as how to fix that capture card. So in order to get around it, they wanted to use something else. So they tried building a GBS control, which seems to be working great for everything that would input RGB, VGA, or component, but that leaves them hanging for S-Video consoles. And they were looking for a way to get S-Video into the GBS control and then go from there. So I have a couple of different answers for you. And I think you should let total cost, not just the price of the solutions, total cost, um, the effort that you're going to put in and ease of use kind of go through all of this for you. Um, the answer to your, qu your question, just the short answer is you could buy a Core U transcoder that takes S video and converts it to component video so you could send it right through your setup. 
but there are other options you might want to consider. First, you can consider any other capture card. Even those little $18 USB stick capture cards seem to work fine with the RetroTank 2X Mini and all of the 2X products. And since it's only a 480p signal, you don't really have to worry about too many of the issues. You know, it's not like you're going to try to squeeze 1080p through those little $20 cards and go from there. So that would be a far cheaper solution than buying the Koryu transcoder. But on the flip side of things, if you wanted to continue to use the Elgato and you wanted one scaler that could handle everything, you could pick up a RetroTINK 5X. And at first, it's really easy to be like, hey, I didn't want to spend all that extra money. I definitely don't want to have another scaler. Why would you suggest a $300 solution? But if you think about it, you take the 100 bucks that you would have spent on a Core U, uh, then you take the money that you could probably get for a 2X Mini, and if, as long as you did a good job on your GBS control, if you sell that too, now you're getting really close to that $300 price point. Once again, factoring in what you would have had to have spent on either the Koryu or another scaler or, some, or another capture card or something like that. So my suggestion to you would be to look at a total solution and what's going to be the best for you and what would solve multiple problems. So if the biggest issue you have is compatibility with streaming and nothing else really matters to you, grab one of those $18 capture cards, use it with the 2X Mini, and you just have to unplug and replug when you switch out consoles as you're streaming. But on the flip side of things, if getting a RetroTINK 5X, especially if you have something like a 1440p gaming monitor that you play on while you're streaming, then something like that might actually be a massive upgrade to your entire setup and worth the extra money. Or you might be gaming on a CRT and only using this for streaming, so the TINK 5X really isn't going to make that big of a difference compared to the GBS control for streaming. You know, I just want to make sure I'm clear about that. Not, not on your own local panel, but for streaming, once you have Twitch and YouTube compression mixed into the algorithms and stuff like that, you know, it's going to be harder for your viewers to really tell the difference unless they know what they're looking for. So I mean that respectfully, I'm certainly not putting down Mike, uh, you know, I, I love both of those projects. I'm just being realistic, you know, unless you're a pro streamer that's doing this for a living that wants to look as professional as possible, not that big of a difference for casuals. So hopefully I was able to paint the proper picture for you and give you choices. And it's really up to you to decide what, if any of those is best for your setup, but hopefully I at least aimed you in the right direction. Oliver Claire is continuing to build a retro setup with a bunch of much older consoles that are RF only. And wanted to look into what type of cables to replace the stock RF cables with. Are there good shielded replacements? Is there anything else out there? And I would say, if possible, you could just use RG6 coax cable. So that's like um, the, the cable TV with a screw at the end. There was RG59 and RG6. You could just use the later model, the RG6 version, and that should be as shielded as humanly possible. In fact, if you really wanted to and you had a bunch of RG6 cables, you could buy some adapters and use those for RGB, for VGA, for audio. I think I saw people back in the day using them for their subwoofers because they were highly shielded and had enough of a conduit to be able to get all the signal over to them. But, um, you know, unless somebody's remembering something that I don't, which 
please chime in in the in the comments if I'm getting this wrong. But I think that's certainly a, an easy way to just guarantee that your cables are shielded. And as you've probably seen in if you've ever been in an apartment building or a place with a lot of cable TV wires going through, they just bundle them up as a nest and zip tie them together. And all of those cables together don't interfere with each other because they're so highly shielded. Um, if you've ever cut one of those open, there's, you know, a lot of metal foil on the outside and there's like a wire mesh and there's a thick solid conduit in the middle surrounded by foam. So it's about as shielded as you could possibly get. So I think that would probably be a good place to start. But if there's anything more specific that you are looking for, definitely let me know. But I just think it's a cheap solution because you could probably end up getting like, you know, 50 feet of RG6 cable, a crimper tool and some heads and just make the late cable lengths much easier than other cables. Because you're just talking about snipping the end off, you know, pulling the foil back, putting the connector on and crimping it. It's not like making a SCART cable and it's even easier than making network cable like RG45 or CAT6, whatever, you know. So, um, but let me know if that wasn't what you were looking for. Hopefully I got that one right couple of things from the Remora. First, they have an MV1C on the way from Mexico. That's the Neo Geo MVS board. That's the smallest one they made, so it's really easy to use in consolization projects. And while they're already on the waiting list for an open MVS kit, they wanted to ask if there was a good budget super gun I would recommend just to hold them off until that happens. Um, None that are easily available. You could pick up like an Ashenworks Mini. Uh, I would check to see when they were when that would ship first, because if Ashen's backordered, then you know you might end up getting the Open MVS at the same time. Uh, but the other projects out there that are great are the Minigun, the Hass, and there's a few others. But I don't know if they're reliably in stock at the moment. There is another project that I thought was done like a year ago that is exactly what you're looking for: just a mini basic super gun that's safe to use. Um, that doesn't have any extra features, but it would just work. Um, that would have been perfect, except I don't know why it's not out yet. So maybe um, maybe DM me if you need one right away, because there might still be a prototype or two left I could hook you up with. But uh, that's actually the, the main one that I use here for testing is that one, because I know everything about it, how it was built. There's no surprises. I could just you know tackle a project without worrying about it. So yeah, I'm not sure. Um, also, you wanted to uh, ask a question about repro shells, but I don't know if you mixed up AES or MVS, so I'm going to read through your question and then kind of try to explain it out. Um, so the Remora said since the Neo SD MVS Pro is sold out, they were looking at the Darksoft cart, which both are good. Just pick whichever one's features you prefer. Um, and is there anyone who's selling repro shells for the AES that they could swap it into, assuming they fit in the open MVS shell? So I just wanted to clarify a few things. The open MVS shell is a 3D printed case and the internal electronics kit is just a way to guarantee the best quality analog audio and video signals you can get without doing any other crazier mods to it. But it's still an MVS. So the cartridges are MVS, everything else on it is that. So if you were saying swap it into a shell that looks like a pretty AES shell, but still is an MVS, then I, I don't know. I've never tried that. It might be possible. I just wanted to make sure that you weren't going to be trying to put this or play AES games on it or put it into an AES cartridge shell. And I think the size is even slightly different. So I don't know if that would fit or work, but I do know there's plenty of people making clear uh, just MVS 
cartridge shells that look awesome. I don't remember if we talked about them on Retro RGB. If I, I'll do a quick search when I'm done with this, and I'll, I'll leave a link if I find it. If not, you might have to do some creative Googling. But I definitely remember finding like clear colored plastics that would fit MVS cases that would make it easy to swap it in either direction if you wanted to, you know, put a nice label, have it, you know, have it look pretty cool. So that's certainly an option. Uh, sorry if I got the AES thing wrong. I just wanted to be very clear just in case anybody listening was unaware, even if you totally got it. Um, and lastly, do I know of a good Ethernet to Wi-Fi adapter that would work for the PS2 and open PS2 loader? The ones they've seen look older and they're concerned they might not support anything past wireless G. No, and in fact, I haven't used those in a long, long time. Uh, and I just, not because there was a problem, but just because I haven't really needed to. I kind of wired everything, even in my apartments, which I'm sure the landlord wasn't really happy about that, but I, I wired everything together so everything that needed Ethernet had it. And I only, even in the burbs, I only put devices on Wi-Fi that make sense. Phones, tablets, laptops, you know, but anything that has an Ethernet port and is stationary, I still wire it just for that. So I, I'm going to have to defer to the... Uh, you know, to the crowd for this one. Does anybody have any that they could link to that they know would be a good solution? Um, also, you mentioned there might be something that's a Pi Zero would be good for. We're working on that too. Uh, kind of paused for a moment because I just had so much stuff pile up. Um, but I do want to swing back to that project and see. And also because, you know, you can't really get Pi Zeros anymore. I had to spend well over 150 bucks on mine just to get one in for testing. So, um, but I, I will swing back around to that because there's just, like I talked about with Dan in the interview, I mean, there's 10 other uses I absolutely would have for plugging a Wi-Fi device into a USB port and having the target device just think it's a USB stick. That's actually a feature that I, I could have so badly used like 10 years ago. <laughs> and I'm sure I could still apply that to today and, and for many different reasons. And there's even a couple of other kind of neat things that are going on behind the scenes that I don't want to mention, not because I'm trying to be a tease, but just because I don't want to talk about it until we're sure it would work. But that would be a big help as well. So uh, I'll swing back around to that one and, and see what I could do. Also, thank you very much for the kind words. Much appreciated. James the Naked Snake has an interesting question. They're looking to get a cheap consumer CRT soon, and when they eventually get a PVM, they want to put the consumer CRT into storage for mid or long term. And they're looking to do this in a loft garage with zero climate control measures, as long-term climate-controlled storage wouldn't be an option, and it's not an option for most people for stuff like this. So... They understand this could cause damage over a prolonged period of time, so they were thinking if they took the following steps, would it be enough protection? So uh, before I read through your steps, I just want to say that I am in the same same boat with a couple of my CRTs. Most are, as you can see, right behind me, but one or two I, I need to keep for a long time for a future project, and if I could stay alive that long, I'm going to be working on it. And my prevention was... A couple of different things. So you mentioned below that, that it's going to be about what you would expect in like the New York area. So minimum of 23 and a high of 77. It's actually uh, cooler then because in the summer it would get really hot. But, um, you know, basically it's not going to be extreme. You're not going to be far below zero and you're not going to be 125 degrees. So it, I guess the thing that I would worry about most is first take the back off the CRT uh, very carefully, remember, please, anybody listening, that you could die working on CRTs, and you can't really die doing a Super Nintendo mod. It's a different level of danger. But take the back off, 
shine a really bright flashlight in and check for any kind of leaking capacitors. And that would be the number one thing because you don't want to put something in storage where all the fluid would leak out and destroy the motherboard. And checking in on it once a year is something that's probably a giant pain in the ass, but something that you should at least do. For me personally, I recapped the entire CRT recently, so I didn't even have to worry about that. I probably wouldn't check for two years maybe, but uh, that would be the number one thing that I would do is make sure there isn't something already going on that's going to slowly eat away at it while it's in storage. The next thing I did was wrap mine in industrial strength, like, Imagine like industrial strength saran wrap type of thing. Um, it's meant for packing material, but my thought on this was a couple of things. First of all, I didn't want spiders to build a nest in there. And then the next time I turn on the CRT, it explodes with a million spiders. It's totally my luck. Um, but also any kind of dripping water, not so much moisture, but I didn't want it so that like, you know, if there was a tiny bit of a leak somewhere or you know, whatever, you know, somebody spilled a cup of water and it went, you know, through where I was going on to this thing because it's stored in a basement area for me. I just wanted basic protection for that. I didn't want it like hermetically sealed because you don't want any humidity to build up on the inside, but it was enough where I, I wrapped enough around it so that, you know, I, I don't really have to worry. If bugs end up do getting in there, then, I mean, that's fate. They would have to fight for it and there's way better places to get food around here than a sealed CRT. So, those, those are the two things that I would, you know, the two basics that I would start with, uh, you know, clean it up, like physically make sure there isn't dust and grime on it just to make sure that, you know, that doesn't kind of destroy any of the plastics over a long period of time, check the capacitors, or if you you're into this stuff, recap it before uh, you put it away. I would do it now so that you could enjoy a nice recap CRT. But once again, you could die while working on CRTs. So watch some of Steve's videos from RetroTech and kind of go from there. Um, but the other things that you mentioned, discharge the CRT. I don't really know if that's necessary. If anybody does know, please let me know. I'm very curious about that. It could certainly be from a safety point of view that you want to discharge it so that when you go to open up and check in a year, you don't have to worry about getting shocked. But um, that's something that you know I really wouldn't worry about too much dehumidifying the room with the CRT in for a prolonged period and while packing. Well, I certainly wouldn't, I would make sure that the room that you're in when you're packing it isn't super humid. So, you know, if you live by the ocean, you know, go to a friend's house, you know, run a dehumidifier in the room and then pack it up in there. But I, I wouldn't go too crazy on that. I certainly wouldn't leave, unless you have a whole bunch of CRTs, I wouldn't like leave a dehumidifier in your storage loft but if you did, if you had like a BVM D32 and a couple of, you know, calibrated PVMs, yeah, absolutely. That would be worth the money. You know, probably end up running a hundred bucks a year in power, but that's small price to pay for, you know, some amazingly rare restored CRTs, if that's the case. Whereas on the flip side, if you have a really, really nice 13 inch consumer CRT that you've just recapped. Is it really worth that much money in dehumidifier power costs and having to, you know, empty the water or run the line? Totally up to you. Packing in a large foil ESD bag. Hmm. That's a, that's an interesting one. I think I would rather just do, I would rather do something like um, have that anti-static bubble wrap on there. And instead of using my industrial strength saran wrap idea, or both, depending on if you worried about bugs and stuff, I would just kind of do that because, you know, you're not going to get a bag big enough to put an entire CRT in, I think. Um, but just having anti-static bubble wrap is a little bit of a cushion and it would just 
be a step in the right direction. I think everybody knows, you know, has, has an article of clothing that whenever they wear it, you know, they shock themselves a lot uh, just with static electricity. And, you you know, it's better to have. So, like, if you go up to your loft to get something else and you're wearing that hoodie or that sweater that does it, you don't reach over and touch the CRT and spark like that. That would probably be a good idea. Um, ceiling and film. Mm, that's totally up to you. And then putting the CRT into an air sealed box. Uh, once again, I don't really know about that one. So those little uh, packs, those dehumidifier packs, that actually might be something that might be kind of neat. So if you know the humidity is always going to be a little high, um, put it in bubble wrap, then put it in a box and throw a few of those packets in there. That might help, but it also might make it a little too dry. Uh, so I don't know. That would have to be, you'd have to have like a giant humidor, I guess, if you really wanted to keep it perfect. But um, so I don't really know. I'd love to hear anybody else's thoughts on it. I'd love to read the comments on what other people are doing. I just think, you know, making sure to clean it up, make sure, especially there's no leaking caps and then wrap it in something. I like the idea of anti-static bubble wrap. Uh, if you, if you think that's going to be an issue and it's not that expensive too, it's not like you're talking about a hundred bucks for a roll of bubble wrap. It's only a few dollars more than the other stuff. So I, I think those are the number ones. Uh, I'm unsure of the discharge, but I, I would love to hear other people's opinions on that. And anything else really is just up to you. You know, like I said, if you had a museum of CRTs, I would go through a completely different process than just one or two. Uh, or if you just have like the greatest two CRTs in the planet that, you know, that you want to keep forever. So anybody else have thoughts on that one? I'm certainly interested to see what anybody else has to say. Quantum Guitar has a friend who's been potentially having trouble with some of their OEM power supplies over time, and they haven't had a chance to test it too much yet, but it did raise a question relative to the setup. It looks like the outlets in his TV room are technically ungrounded. Do I know of any specific impact this could have on retro or newer consoles, TV sets, or stereo receivers being run together with this grounding situation? So couple answers to your questions. First, if you're having any trouble with OEM power supplies, get one of those triads. Buy just one to start. If it solves your problem, awesome. Buy some more or, or just buy some adapters and manually switch them. If it doesn't solve your problem, at least you have a backup there for the future. And while I, I really genuinely don't like to tell people to just throw money out there if you don't need to, that's one of those things that you're going to use at some point. Maybe it'll be next week. Maybe it'll be three or four years from now, but that's not going to go to waste unless you suddenly stop using power supplies. <laughs> so I would try that. Um, the other question is way more complicated in that, yes, there could always be issues if grounding is wrong, but probably not with most consoles. So here's why. Most of those consoles have two-prong adapters. They didn't have a separate ground that would go into the wall, so they're not really designed to do that. Um, now, of course, if there's wiring issues in the house and it's not grounded properly, that's a safety issue, and that's way above anything to do with video games or electronics. I actually had something like that here where I went to replace uh, just a basic light switch and or a light switch plate, and the new one came with screws that are a little bit longer, which touched the back, which is fine, except 
the people who lived here before, it's apparently only this one, because I started checking all of them, but they ran ground through power or something. It seemed like a mistake. It seemed like they were trying to do one of those loops so that you could turn, you know, control the same light with two switches and have them both, you know, be in the correct polarity. It seemed like a basic mistake, but if any load was put on that line, luckily it was just lights to a switch, but that could have been a very dangerous thing. It could have been shock or fire or whatever else. So luckily, I, you know, I called an electrician to make sure that was fixed correctly. I didn't guess my way through it. And so that's, you know, a very stupid story to prove the point of if there's actually wiring issues in your friend's wall, spend that money to have an electrician come out and check it. Because that's, you know, that's one of the times that I am comfortable telling you to throw some money at a problem because that's your personal safety right there. And a couple hundred bucks to have an electrician fix some problems is well worth it as opposed to having your house burned down or, you know, somebody get electrocuted. So sorry for my little safety rant there, but, you know, power is... is taken for granted on both safety and equality all the time. I just want to make sure that people always have that in the forefront. You know, your your house is basically one big potential to kill you. And if it's done right, it's as safe as anybody could imagine. But if it's not, ugh. so to get past that though, assuming that everything is wired correctly, you just don't have three prong power plugs in there. Um, there's always the chance of a ground loop or a ground hum. And that could result at minimum in nothing, or even just things like mild interference on the screen, a little bit of hum on your audio lines, or depending on how bad it is and what uh, what things are affected by it, you could, you know, lower the life of your electronics. You can get some other problems with it. So that's why a lot of people like to use power conditioners. I use those APC ones that Renee suggested a long time ago that kind of help out with things like this. And you just need to figure out the maximum power that it supports simultaneously. So you could have a million devices plugged into one of these. And if only one is powered on at the same time, it doesn't matter. But potentially, if you're especially if you're using CRTs, you could have four or five of these plugged in. And if they're all powered on at the same time, that's too much for it. So I'll leave a link to that and the triads just just as something that, you know, hey, maybe you'd want to check this out. But that's gonna I mean, that has a three prong adapter, and that's going to expect some ground as well. So that wouldn't fix a ground problem that would just be like if you have a really expensive record player or a super rare console or, or you know bvm or something that you just want to add a 50 dollars layer of protection to who knows maybe renee was trolling me and it doesn't do anything i don't I mean that is totally something he would do but he wouldn't tell other people <laughs> to, to do that as well which is why i'm so uh confident in that um you know in, in that recommendation and i have a couple so i'll leave links to both of those things but I think, you know, if there's any question about power quality, it's really worth having an electrician check it out. And it might be way out of budget and not worth fixing, or you might stumble across something dangerous that you're glad that you had it checked out. But either way, I felt like that was a worthy rant. Tiago Santos was thinking about acquiring a 16 by 9 consumer-grade CRT. They haven't settled on a model yet, as they'll probably just go with whatever they could find locally, but they're wondering how those handle 4x3 games. Is support for 4x3 something that they don't have to worry about, or are there someones out there that'll stretch the image no matter what? So there's always the possibility, but I can't imagine a TV manufacturer from that era not having a 16 by 9 toggle. Now, that might be something that you require the remote to use, and if the previous owner lost the remote, you'll have to buy a generic and go through the menu, but it's something that, you know, I can't say for sure because I haven't tested all of them, but I would be shocked 
of if one of them didn't have that ability. Because remember, so much content when these were released was still 4x3. And in fact, 4x3 was a TV standard for quite a few years after widescreen TVs started to be mainstream. So that's something that I don't think you should worry about. What I would worry about is what content you're trying to use on them. Because many of those 16 by 9 HD CRTs, if not all of them, process 240p wrong. They process them as interlaced 480i content, which means it'll look wrong, there'll be a bunch of lag, it's just not a good solution for that. So if you're looking for these predominantly to play old school games, that's not going to be a good choice. But if you're playing 480i or 480p content, so PS2, Dreamcast, GameCube, Xbox, that is where you these things really shine. Because a lot of the ones out there scale everything to 1080i, which is great for PS2, 480i games, not really for anything else. But I have found a bunch that uh, display 480i, 480p, and 1080i perfectly fine. Um, I'm not really, I, I try to always do progressive scan when possible. So I always stick with, in that scenario, I would stick with 480i and 480p. But that means all the consoles that I just talked about. So GameCube, Wii, uh, PlayStation 2, original Xbox, and, and possibly even in Dreamcast and some of the other consoles after that, depending on the games you play, this might be the perfect display for those. So your question is still valid because most of those consoles output 4x3, with the exception of the Wii, of course. So your question is still valid. I don't think you would have a problem. I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that so you didn't hunt down an HDC or something, get it home and go, why does this look like crap? So maybe you were already aware, but you know, if so, then I guess I helped anybody out that, uh, that wasn't aware. So I will be doing a video on that at some point, but I'm so backlogged. It might not even be to the end of the year, but I do want to talk about that in a video and I want to show examples and I want to do lag tests and all of that stuff. Uh, maybe I could even ask friends who, who have some of those to shoot footage and we'll all put together one big video for it. But either way, I still love them. I think they're great. I use one here every Sunday for football, uh, cause you know, it just makes it easier to watch cause it's already right there. And it's really impressive even how good 480p looks on it. So I think they're worth hunting down unless you're only there to play SNES, Genesis, Nintendo, you know, SMS, and then occasionally watch movies. It's not really going to be your best choice, but I think you should be safe with the 16 by 9, 4 by 3 toggle. Adam, Adam Ant has a question that I also would like the answer to. So supposedly running PlayStation 2 backups from a hard drive has the same compatibility rate as running them off of that new SD reader option that I just talked about that Tito just launched the video on. However, both of those are supposedly better and more reliable than streaming games over the Ethernet port. And Adam was looking to know if there is a list of compatibilities to know what you can or can't do from games over the network. And I would like that as well, because I only tried a handful of games that all worked perfect. And as I mentioned before, none of them had like full motion video streaming or anything like that. It basically just loaded the game. And then once each level was loaded, you're gone. Like uh, uh, Outrun, the game I always used to test because I actually really like the game and because it has multiple resolution modes and everything. So for me, I just left it at the game loading screen, which didn't seem to take any more or less time than the DVD. And it worked perfect afterwards. So 
for the games that I've been testing on, there was zero difference, but I imagine there would be a, a lot bigger difference with some or others. So I do know there's the compatibility list for hard drive games, but I don't know about the one or if there is even one for network. So if anybody knows the answer to that, or if I'm forgetting something, please let me know. And uh, sorry, I don't have the answer, Adam, but I'm also curious. Another question from Adam, they just got a hold of a used QNAP RAID NAS box. So that's a dedicated like mini computer with a bunch of hard drive slots that you just plug into your network. You don't use it as an external drive enclosure like the Mediasonic RAID boxes. It is essentially like a little computer that automatically has a RAID set up for you. And while that has its own operating system, uh, there's no way to use that as just an external drive. So how would you set up RetroNAS in that scenario? So there's two ways. The perfect way to do it, which does not exist yet, would be to have the RetroNAS app as uh, something that you could load onto the QNAP's operating system. And while that might not be feasible on all NASs, it's more likely that you're going to see each piece of RetroNAS be its own app. So rather than one run one setup, you'd have to run a setup for SMB, a setup for Mr., a setup for PS2. So it's about the same amount of work. It's just organized differently. But that doesn't exist yet. We're going to need the community to step up and build that themselves, to be honest, because that's just a lot of work um, and it's a small team of people working on it. However, at the moment, you could do something like load up a Raspberry Pi, load up an old PC, a beat up old laptop that barely works, load Debian and RetroNAS on that, and then map the network share from the NAS. And Yes, it's not going to be the most efficient because then the computer that you're using, whether it's Mr. or whatever else, has to ping RetroNAS, which pings the you know your QNAP, which goes back through RetroNAS and back out. But the speed of your average, you know, especially if you have a computer with a gigabit Ethernet port, and I believe that QNAP does as well, you shouldn't really have to worry about that too much. You just would want to consider it a temporary solution. The way to do that would be to map a network drive in Linux. That's a Linux thing. That's not a retro NAS thing. And you're going to have to find yourself a Linux guru or a forum that will, you know, would be patiently willing to walk you through that process. But once it's done, it essentially, like on Windows, would treat that as if it was a local drive. And then you point retro NAS to that, and then you kind of go from there. So I haven't done that. Um, this is based on nerd theory, which I'm pretty sure I'm fluent in. So if there's a Linux expert out there that knows why this wouldn't work for whatever reason, please let me know. But I'm, I'm like 99% sure that this is good advice. Uh, and just know that, you know, and I know I said this last week, so I'll, I'll skip to the end and make it quick. But what's going to take the most time by far is organizing your ROMs and collecting them and getting them all in one spot. Even if you already have them organized, copying them from one location to another, that's going to be the most time consuming. So while you could start now with a Pi or an old laptop, point RetroNAS to your QNAP, if at some point these apps do become available and the community makes them, it might take, even if you're a complete noob, it might take an hour total to, to switch over the solution to be running right on the NAS. And, you know, an hour is a long time, but not when you consider that compared to how much time you've spent curating your ROMs. So for something like this, I would totally be comfortable saying, do it twice. Do it now, knowing that it's going to be a temporary solution, and let's hope in the future that we're able to get apps on these different Synology, QNAP, you know, Drobo, whatever NAS boxes, so that people could just add those and then switch it over later. And then that would be more efficient because everything's running on the same thing. So I think that's good advice, but as always, I'm all ears and I'm open to anybody's suggestions. 
questions, especially Linux experts, because I am not one. Aaron S. got an NES front loader from a coworker, and it does work, but only after the typical wiggling the cartridge around, cleaning the heck out of the cartridge with isopropyl and Q-tips, and they were wondering what to do about that. Should they boil the connector? Should they look into a blinking light win? And that's a question that I have an opinion on, I have a couple opinions on, but it's really something that you're going to have to decide for yourself. So I've heard the boiling trick before. I've never done it myself. I've also heard taking the connector out so, you know, it's out of the console and then cleaning that manually with like a tooth scraper. Like you can get those at pharmacies and stuff like that. Just like a metal dental pick or something and trying to bend them out a little bit so that it puts a little more pressure on the cartridge. Um, obviously, cleaning it with compressed air is an excellent thing to do. And take a look at the capacitors. Are they leaking? Especially inside the RF box. That's the notorious one on NESs. If they do tend to leak, it's usually in there. So I would kind of look through all of that and see and put it back together and see what happens. You could very much get lucky and just clean the heck out of that connector and find that like as you're putting the Q-tip in or, or putting the um, the pick in or any kind of scraping tool, if you're pulling gunk out of it, there's an excellent chance you could make that into a working thing. If not, then you have some choices. I bought the blinking light win when it first came out. And while this is probably one of the dumbest things I've said, I missed pushing the cartridge down. So for me, nostalgia only matters in the experience around the game. Once I get 10 seconds into a video game, nostalgia doesn't mean shit. It's whether the game is good or not is why I play it. But if I'm going to use original hardware and not fire up my mister, it's because that's the experience I want. I want to get the cartridge. I want to grab a Q-tip and clean it out. I want to push it in. I want to push it down and close the tray and hit the power button and probably have to do that process three or four times to get it running. For me personally, that's the nostalgia that I think is really neat and that, you know, that I think is a cool experience. If you don't really care about that, Blinking Light Win is probably the best way to do it. Um, but you do, you know, there's no more push down on that thing. Um, as far as boiling it goes, I've heard people say that before, and I just, I'm not really sure. And I'm also always weary of getting water around metal in a scenario like that. Yes, of course, you hit it with compressed air, you leave it in the sun, you should be fine, but eh, I don't really know. Um, the other thing you could do is just try to find a replacement connector, but I've run into scenarios in which I bought three or four from three or four totally different stores and they showed up even looking different. So it wasn't like one big run that a bunch of stores were reselling and they all sucked. I ended up going back to the original, bending the pins and going from there. And on the flip side, I've had people over the years go, oh, this store just got in a batch of a couple hundred of them, you know, and I, I bought it. It showed up for like $12 or something. I plugged it in and it was flawless. So for me personally, I would just clean everything out as best as you can by yourself and see what happens and then go from there. Um, if you buy one of those replacement cartridge connectors, try to find reputable stores, try to find people like go to your favorite discord forum, whatever else, and see if anybody has bought one recently that they could vouch for and kind of just go from there and see what happens. Um, but it's really up to you on where you want to spend your money after that. You also mentioned people talked about blinking light wind compatibility with the N8 pro, but, um, I don't remember hearing anything about that. And I, I sold the blinking light wind long before the N8 pro came out. So I wouldn't have had that experience anyway. But if anybody wants to chime in on that, I'd certainly like to know the, uh, what was going on with that. But 
you really just kind of got to figure this one out and decide what path you want to take. For me personally, I would probably just do the cleaning and then buy any 72 pin connector online, cross my fingers and hope I didn't just throw away 15 bucks. But, you know, unfortunately with retro, that's going to happen now and then. But hopefully I'll at least get you pointed in the right direction. Well, that's it for this time. If you're new to these Q&As, ask any question you'd like wherever it is that you support in the newest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. And like you saw today, I just think it's fun to scroll through and read them in real time as they come up. So anywhere that you support, just find the latest Q&A post, ask your question there. And if I don't get to it, it's always a mistake. I don't delete any of these questions. Um, it's usually just because the question came in after I was done recording or uh, if I accidentally deleted it in post or made a stupid mistake like that. That certainly happened before. So any question you want, fire away. And as always, thank you so much to everybody who supports in absolutely any way possible, because it is you who is keeping all of this stuff alive. The website, the podcasts, these Q&As, everything is all because of you. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week.